the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. James Blend is vacationing, but Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. Looking forward to a conversation later this hour with Lysandra Barnes. She is the founder and CEO of Royal One Enterprise, LLC. She's also the author of Rejected to Accepted, Learning to Love Myself After Adversity. She is a local author, a graduate of Western Seminary. Uh, holding an MDiv and is working on her doctorate from George Fox University. We'll talk with Lysandra later this hour. And then in the 5 o'clock hour, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Max McLean. Uh, he is uh, going to be performing C.S. Lewis, The Most Reluctant Convert. And we're going to be giving away a pair of tickets today and for the remainder of this week and into uh, part of next week as well. So we'll tell you about that performance. It's coming up on the 2nd and 3rd of August at the uh, Newmark Theater. That's coming up in the latter part of the 5 o'clock hour. First, a look at some of the headlines. President Trump at a fiery Make America Great Again campaign rally, or I suppose it's supposed to be Keep America Great Now. Uh, on Wednesday night in Greenville, North Carolina, blasted far-left Democratic representatives Omar and uh, Tlaib, uh, Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Presley, uh, as he his feud with the four members of the so-called squad showed no sign of dying down. Many supporters chanted, send her back. The president took aim at Omar, saying that she smeared U.S. service members in Black Hawk Down. She slandered the brave Americans trying to keep peace in Somalia, a dig at her Somali-American heritage. The president also said that she blamed America for the economic crisis in Venezuela and refused to condemn al-Qaeda. Well, the, the send-her-back chants referred to Trump's tweet on Sunday in which the president asked why Democratic congresswomen don't go back and help fix the totally broken um, and crime-infested places from which they came, then come back and show us how it's done. Omar responded to the chant Wednesday by quoting iconic poet Maya Angelou on Twitter, 2020 presidential um, Democratic presidential candidate uh, Senator Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, and uh, Amy Klobuchar, as well as Kirsten Gillibrand, slammed the president as well, accusing him of stoking racism and xenophobia. And the House of Representatives on Wednesday voted to set aside a resolution by Representative Al Green, a Democrat out of Texas, to introduce articles of impeachment against President Trump. The third time the Houston area lawmaker has uh, taken a shot at impeaching the president, but the first since uh, Democrats regained control of the House. The uh, effort was uh, opposed by uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Lawmakers voted 332 to 95 to table Green's resolution, which was widely panned. And other uh, top Democrats worried that the measure would force vulnerable swing district lawmakers into peril ahead of the 2020 election. The bipartisan vote shelved many or rather any chance of bringing forth articles of impeachment against the president in the near future. And the Democrat-controlled House of Representatives on Wednesday voted to hold Attorney General Bill Barr and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross in criminal contempt 
saying they were stonewalling congressional probes into the Trump administration's effort to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. The vote to hold Barr and Ross in contempt was 230 to 198, with four Democrats and all Republicans voting no. Representative Justin Amash of Michigan, now an independent after leaving the Republican Party, not surprisingly voted yes. Ross issued a statement immediately after the vote, charging that House Democrats were engaging in a PR stunt and political games. In other news, comedian and activist John Stewart blasted two Republican senators for delaying a vote on reauthorizing the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund at a first responder turned activist claimed they lack humanity. Citing the national debt, Senator Rand Paul derailed the attempt by Democrats on Wednesday to fast track an extension of that compensation fund for 9-11 victims. Senator Mike Lee placed a procedural hold on the legislation despite the roadblock. The authorization or rather reauthorization will eventually pass the Senate, Stewart predicted. It's absolutely outrageous, and you'll pardon me if I'm not impressed in any way by Rand Paul's fiscal responsibility virtue signaling, he said in an interview on Special Report on Wednesday. Thousands gathered yesterday in San Juan to demand the resignation of Puerto Rico Governor Ricardo Rosello. Uh, over the leak of online chats with, uh, that show him making misogynistic slurs and mocking his constituents. Wednesday's mass demonstration was the second this week against the embattled leader, waving Puerto Rican flags, some in black and gray, to signal their discontent with the government and chanting demands at uh, Rosello. Uh, step down. Demonstrators of every age uh, said that they were fed up with the corruption of elected officials. The crowd included Hamilton, or rather, yeah, included Hamilton creator Lynn Manuel Miranda, um, pop star Ricky Martin, and um, uh, Benito Martinez Ocasio, known as Bad Bunny and um, Resident. I'm not sure who that is. The House voted to hold Attorney General William Barr. I mentioned that already. The Washington Examiner reports that Border Patrol highway checkpoints in southern New Mexico uh, in that region that normally seize seven figures worth of drugs annually have not seized a dollar in nearly four months because Border Patrol closed them uh, to move all personnel to the border to assist with apprehending, processing, and caring for the high number of migrant families arriving. However, Time magazine says preliminary federal data suggests the number of Americans who died from drug overdoses finally fell in 2018 after years of significant increases. Provisional uh, data from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's National Center for Health Statistics predicted that 68,500 Americans died of drug overdose in 2018 compared to 72,000 the year before. And the Pentagon said on Wednesday it would send an additional 1,000 Texas National Guard and 1,100 active duty troops to the border with Mexico, the latest deployment in support of President Donald Trump's immigration crackdown. There are currently about 4,500 active duty and National Guard troops on the border with Mexico now. And Mexicans are deeply frustrated with immigrants after a year of heightened migration from Central America through the country, according to a survey conducted by The Washington Post and Mexico's Reforma newspaper. More than six in 10 Mexicans say migrants are a burden on their country because they take jobs and benefits that should belong to Mexicans. A 55 percent majority supports deporting migrants who travel through Mexico to reach the United States. And the Trump administration yesterday officially banned Turkey for purchasing American-made F-35 fighter jets, citing the NATO members' purchasing of Russian-made anti-aircraft systems. 
National Review reported that Turkey's decision to purchase Russian S-400 air defense system renders its continued involvement with the F-35 impossible. A statement from the White House said the F-35 cannot coexist with a Russian intelligence collection platform that will be used to learn about its advanced capabilities. This is clearly more evidence of Russian collusion. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a break here in just a moment. Also, later this hour, looking forward to a conversation with Lysandra Barnes, founder and CEO of Royal One Enterprise, LLC. She's also the author of Rejected to Accepted. She'll join me in studio later this hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we're going to talk with Lysandra Barnes. She, her book is titled Rejected to Accepted. She'll be with me in studio. Portions of our program today are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. Well, Iran's paramilitary Revolutionary Guard forces seized a foreign oil tanker accused of smuggling oil. Iran State TV reported uh, today. The Associated Press reports here the vessel appears to be a United Arab Emirates-based tanker that had disappeared off trackers in Iranian territorial waters over the weekend. Meanwhile, the Daily Beast says the U.S. is prepping to send troops to Saudi Arabia as part of its thousand-troop deployment to the Middle East amid rising tensions with Iran. And a recently released and subsequently deleted document published by a NATO-affiliated body has sparked headlines in Europe with an apparent confirmation of a long-held open secret. U.S. nuclear weapons are being stored in Belgium, Germany, Italy, and the Netherlands, as well as Turkey. A passing reference appeared to reveal the location of roughly 150 U.S. nuclear weapons being stored in Europe. And Joaquin El Chapo Guzman was sentenced to life behind bars in a U.S. prison. A federal judge in Brooklyn decided on Wednesday, in addition to the life term, the judge ordered a $12.6 billion forfeiture, which prosecutors said was a conservative estimate of the proceeds of El Chapo's drug trafficking. And on this day in A.D. 64, going back just a smidge, the Great Fire of Rome begins, consuming most of the city for about a week. And on uh, this day in 1940, that's B.C. or A.D., I guess, as well, the Democratic National Convention in Chicago at the stadium nominated President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who is monitoring the uh, proceedings at the White House, for an unprecedented third term in office. Earlier in the day, Eleanor Roosevelt speaks to the convention, becoming the first presidential spouse to address such a gathering. And on this day in 1947, President Harry S. Truman signs a Presidential Succession Act, which places the Speaker of the House and the Senate President pro tempore next in line of succession after the Vice President. And on this day in 1969, U.S. uh, Senator Edward M. Kennedy uh, leaves a party on Chappaquiddick Island near Martha's Vineyard with Mary Jo Kopechny. Sometime later, Kennedy's car goes off a bridge into the water. Kennedy is able to escape, but Kopechny drowns. The scandal would dog Kennedy the rest of his life. And on this day in 2013, Detroit becomes the biggest U.S. city to file for bankruptcy. Well, as I mentioned, a U.S. warship uh, destroyed an Iranian drone in the Strait of Hormuz amid heightened tensions between the two countries. The U.S. reserves the right to defend personnel, facilities and interests, the president says. He said the USS Boxer took defensive action after the drone closed to to within 1,000 yards of the warship and ignored multiple calls to stand down. The president called it the latest hostile action by Iran. Marines on board took down the drone using electric jamming equipment, U.S. officials said. The device, known as the Light Marine 
An air defense integrated system deployed for the first time in January aboard the USS Kearsarge, uh, the same uh, class of uh, warship as the USX Boxer. Well, the president also called on other countries to condemn what he described as Iran's attempt to disrupt the freedom of navigation and global commerce in the strategic waterway in the Persian Gulf region. Chief Pentagon spokesperson Jonathan Hoffman confirmed at approximately 10 a.m. local time, the amphibious ship USS Boxer was in international waters conducting a planned inbound transit of the Strait of Hormuz. A fixed-wing, unmanned aerial system approached Boxer and closed within a, a threatening range. The ship took defensive action against the UAS to ensure the safety of the ship and its crews. The president said the drone threatened the safety of the American ship. And therefore, it was a legitimate strike. The latest action came with the heightened tensions between the U.S. and Iran in the wake of the breakdown of the nuclear deal. As the secretive regime announced, it has exceeded the threshold of low enriched uranium stockpiles as agreed upon in the 2015 accord. And the Trump administration is preparing to send 500 U.S. troops to Saudi Arabia, bolstering the military relationship between the U.S. and the kingdom amid rising tensions with neighboring Iran. The troops will be sent to the Prince Sultan Air Base in the country, which is in a desert east of Riyadh, uh, citing two unnamed official, uh, officials rather familiar with the plans, CNN reports. Well, the deployment plan comes as the United States continues to respond to the downing of a U.S. drone by Iran in that region. After the drone was shot down, the president pulled back on a military strike of the country when he found out more than 100 people, civilians, would be killed in a planned operation. The U.S. also announced it would deploy 1,000 troops in the region after an attack on an oil tanker in the Gulf of Oman that the U.S. blames on Iran. Uh, Acting Defense Secretary Pat Shanahan said in a statement, the recent Iranian attacks validate the reliable, credible intelligence we have received on hostile behavior by Iranian forces and their proxy groups that threaten United States personnel and interests across the region. The plan also strengthens the Trump administration's relationship with Saudi Arabia, even as congressional lawmakers have sought to punish the country, in part for the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Khashoggi, a U.S. national, was killed and dismembered in the Saudi embassy in Turkey, allegedly by agents of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, Not very uh, attractive business in this area. Well, President Trump um, has won the second of three lawsuits alleging he violated the Constitution because foreigners and state officials patronized his business, such as the Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C. The Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals dismissed the claim by Maryland and District of Columbia that uh, Trump was violating the Constitution's domestic and foreign uh, emoluments clauses. The foreign emoluments clause reads, no title of nobility shall be granted by the United States and no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall without the consent of Congress accept any uh, present emolument, office or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. The domestic emoluments clause reads, the president shall at stated times receive for his services a compensation which shall neither be increased nor diminished during the period for which he shall be uh, have been elected, and he shall not receive within that period any other emolument from the United States or any of them. 
In throwing out his latest suit, the Fourth Circuit chastised the plaintiffs for wasting the court's time with a plainly meritless case, as they referred to it. The court also scolded federal judge Peter Missett, a Clinton appointee, for not throwing out the case sooner and for refusing to let the president appeal his erroneous rulings. Judge Missett's uh, faulty reasoning blinks reality, he's, uh, what the court said, and his actions amounted to a clear abuse of discretion. Judge Massette's ruling was so erroneous that the Fourth Circuit didn't even wait for an appeal. It accepted the president's request for writ of mandamus, a rarely granted procedural tool that allows early review of an otherwise non-appealable issue to take the case away from Judge Massette, reverse his ruling and force him to throw the case out for good without the possibility of further appeal. The lawsuit alleged that because government employees and foreign officials pay for services they receive from Trump's businesses, that payment procedure, uh, procedures, a constitutionally forbidden present to the uh, present. Well, the court held that Maryland and the district uh, district's interest in the cases were abstract and simply too attenuated for the case to proceed. Maryland and the District of Columbia argued that they had, are harmed by the alleged constitutional violation because the Trump Hotel competes with conference centers and hotels they own, which, of course, brings up a question not dealt with in the lawsuit. Why are Maryland and D.C. involved in the conference and hospitality industry to begin with and competing with private industry? Well, their claims rested on the speculation accepted at uh, face value by Judge Massette that government officials patronize the Trump Hotel because it distributes profits to the president and not for any other reason. But there are, of course, two equally plausible competing speculations that some government officials avoid the Trump Tower because of its association with the president and that some government officials stay at the Trump Hotel because It's a nice place to stay. Regardless, courts don't decide cases based on speculations. What's more, Maryland and the district couldn't explain how prohibiting the president from earning money from the hotel would stop government officials from going there. In other words, even if they had a viable legal claim, there is no possible remedy. Now, there are still two other pending cases that the president must face uh, that are uh, to be resolved. Federal prosecutors in New York on Thursday revealed details concerning why the FBI carried out raids on President Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, before he was ultimately charged and convicted of campaign finance violations and other crimes. The revelation came in the form of unsealed search warrant documents after Judge William Pauley III ordered the government to publish the materials on a public docket. The same judge recently revealed the investigation itself is closed, prompting Trump's legal team to hail the end of the probe into what they called ridiculous allegations. The fact that the investigation has now ended and the judge deemed it appropriate to unseal the documents makes it likely that no other charges are coming related to the matter. Sources told the Associated Press today that no additional charges are planned. Well, the newly unsealed documents, meanwhile, show details of communications between Cohen, Trump, executives at National Enquirer publisher American Media Inc., and others that the FBI believes pertained to the orchestration of a 130000 hush payment uh, to adult film star, what's-her-name, and the other one. Trump has denied knowledge of those payments, um, says the... Um, Uh, The documents, one of them, as set forth below, there is probable cause to believe that Cohen made this payment to Clifford for the purpose of influencing the presidential election and therefore that the payment was an excessive in-kind contribution to the Trump campaign, one of the documents said. But according to the files, phone records show that Cohen had calls with Trump, then uh, Trump campaign press secretary Hope Hicks. AMI CEO David Pecker and AMI chief content officer Dylan Howard at a key point in the 2016 campaign. 
Hicks, who also served at the White House as a communications director, is now executive vice president and chief communications officer for the Fox Corporation. But again, uh, no charges are expected in that case. Up next, looking forward to a conversation with Lysandra Barnes. She is the founder and CEO of Royal One Enterprise, LLC. She's also an author, Rejected to Accepted. We'll give her an opportunity to tell her story. And I should mention she's also working on her doctorate from George Fox University. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. And we're back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I have to tell you, I've been looking forward to these next two segments because I have an opportunity to speak with a young woman um, that I have a great deal of uh, respect for who's worked very hard. She's uh, finishing up her uh, doctorate, and that will be completed by the end of the year or somewhere around there, uh, the start of the new year. And she's a new author. Rejected to Accepted is her book, Learning to Love Myself After Adversity. It's a book for people who have longed for loving and healthy relationship, particularly with uh, in, in romantic realm, and have, haven't been able to encounter the happily ever after that they have longed for. Um, she experienced domestic violence, a series of failed and unhealthy relationships, and she was left wondering, as many women are, is anybody ever going to love me? And am I worthy of that kind of, of love? Well, her book explores the personal struggles and triumphs that she's faced while embarking on her journey of self-discovery. And it has a happy ending. So we're just delighted to have her with us. Lysandra Barnes um, has her MDiv from Western. She is a youth pastor at Life Change Church. Uh, when she was eight years old, she accepted Jesus as her personal Savior, and she received her call uh, to ministry when she was 16. A lot happened from that point to the present. She received her bachelor's degree from Michigan State University and a master's of divinity with an emphasis in pastoral care for women from Western Seminary. She's currently working on her doctorate, as I mentioned, in ministry at George Fox University. She is an adjunct professor at Western Seminary, a spiritual and life coach and ministry consultant, and as I mentioned, first-time all her book is titled Rejected to Accepted, Learning to Love Myself After Adversity. Lasonda Barnes, welcome. Thank you. So happy to be here. You know, it's so interesting to, uh, to me that you, at a uh, relatively low point, had a vision of what your life could be. But circumstances so often derail us, and we take detours that we imagine prevent us from ever realizing the full potential and the full purpose that God has for us. And yet you're realizing all of those things, even though there were roadblocks in, along the way. Yeah, absolutely. I think with the power of God is really what allowed me to stay on that path to see it was something greater in my life outside of just the negative that was going on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit as you do in the book about your early days growing up. You were like I am a daddy's girl. And so many of us look to our dads for affirmation and to just help us to recognize our true value. And that's what you saw in your early days with your father. I did. Um, I loved my dad and he, you know, I always say that he was, the. I was, I'm sorry. I loved him so much that I just felt like everything that I did was of, of my dad. So if he liked pepper, I liked pepper. If he liked onions or didn't like onions, I didn't like onions. Whatever he liked, I liked. Whatever he didn't like, you know, I didn't like. And I just really adored him. And, you know, when those moments happened, when things started to change, I lost who I was because my father was no longer there to give me that identity, that purpose, you know, and that affection that I was longing for. Mm. And you had had a, a relationship with your father. And then when your parents uh, separated, that really strained that relationship. And so many women translate that into a kind of an insecurity. How did that impact your life as a young woman? 
And uh, and how did you respond to that longing that you had in your heart? Well, at eight years old, that's when I met rejection. I didn't know what it was called then, but now I look back and see that's what it was. I'm having that hole in my heart. I needed somebody to fill the void that my father had now left. And so I was looking for it in all the wrong places. So I was using anger. I was using, you know, love. I was, I was just using everything that I could find, even perfection. I would say that was a big thing for me. I wanted to be perfect because that way I could prove to him that I was enough for him to come back in love. Mm. And yet that void remained in place. Now, you were a believer at a young age. How did your faith fit into this struggle that you were experiencing that, again, is so common uh, to, to young women? You know, at the time, I didn't realize it. I just was grateful that my mom raised us in church. And I remember I was eight and I could just feel, you know, my heart pleading for the Lord. And I just went to the altar to get saved, not realizing that the whole time it was covering me through all of that. So I feel like I never got too far away from Mm -hmm. God and I still remained faithful through the whole process. But it was just that God was there with me through the whole thing. And sometimes I may have not have, I may not have known him that he was there, but it was always that everlasting covering that was with me until I was 16. And then I said, you know what? I really want to get on fire for God. And at that point I was like, Lord, I know you will never leave me or forsake me. I know that you can heal this brokenness. I know that you can be everything that I need. And it was easy to say that, but it was hard walking it out. Mm. Now, you had aspired to go to university. You were accepted in university. That was a big affirmation for you. But you carried that that emptiness in your heart um, when you traveled to that university. Tell us a little bit about what happened while you were there. Well, I met a guy and I was looking for love in all the wrong places. And turns out he was abusive. And it started very small, and then it started from, you know, saying words and being negative to then putting his hands on me. And it was only lasted three months, but it was the worst three months of my life. And I was full of shame. I was full of guilt. I, you know, didn't want, I couldn't believe I got myself in that situation, but I was so determined to stay because I wanted to prove that I was enough to be loved. And I wanted to be the one to show him what love was like because he told me his story Mm -hmm. and how he was broken. And I was like, oh, maybe I can fix him. Maybe I can show him, you know, all of these things and realizing that putting his needs before mine allowed me to be broken even more. Mm. You write that as a teen, I learned the art of wearing a mask. I found myself putting my softer side away and allowing my anger and toughness to become my protector. On the inside, I was really hurt. On the outside, I was strong. No one knew that I was searching for validation, acceptance, and love. One of the things that brought shame to you was the fact that you were such a strong person. You were perceived as such a strong person to admit that you were in a situation where you were being dominated by someone. That was difficult to admit. And it would have cracked kind of that shell that you had put around your your heart and your life. Absolutely. And that's the thing is that when I tell someone that I was abused, most of my friends who didn't know about it, they were like, how? Because you are so strong and you never show vulnerability. And so how do you how does someone now tell you the worst thing that could ever happen to a person happens to you and they're not going to believe you? And so what I realized from that process is that it's time to let those walls come down. Because when I need somebody the most, they're not going to be there because they don't assume that I need help mm-hmm. because I'm always helping someone else. Yeah, that facade mm-hmm. made you, uh, you weren't really available to receive what they didn't know you needed. Exactly. Now, one of the things that people who haven't experienced abuse, and we're talking about um, physical and sexual abuse that you endured, is why didn't she leave? That's the question we always ask. And you write about it in the book in a way that helps 
uh, helps people understand how that happens, that even though it's a physically painful uh, situation, it's emotionally difficult, uh, why a person would stay. Can you try to explain that to listeners who haven't been in that situation, um, how you could uh, manage to stay when you're being hurt so, so desperately? Absolutely. So what happens in those spaces is that you lose your identity, you lose your purpose, you lose everything, and you you gain on everything that the um, your uh, significant other wants, whatever they like, whatever they don't like, becomes your identity. And in that moment, I can't leave because, one, I'm afraid, and two, if I leave, who am I? And so I'd rather stay in the chaos that I know than leave into a space of the unknown. And so a lot of times I tell people um, – a lot of, if you've never been involved in domestic violence, you see it from a healthy perspective. You would say, I would never take that. Mm-hmm. I would leave. You need to go. But if you have been wounded, you don't know anything else. And he said so many horrible things to you that you, they could have said, I would kill your family if you leave. Um, you would be nothing without me. So many damaging things are said. So it's like, how do I p- pick my life back up when I've lost everything? It isn't until a person learns their self-esteem and their self-worth that they're able to get the courage and the, and the confidence to walk away from it. Mm. And so I, I uh, appreciate ARMS, Abuse Recovery Ministry and Services. I worked with them for three years, and they have a very awesome program that walks with women who have been involved in domestic violence through the process of healing so that they can get the confidence and courage to heal and, and leave those situations if that's what they want to do. Now, we're going to take a break um, uh, in just a moment, but one would assume that once you have uh, removed yourself from the situation, that you are free and there's no residual impact. When we come back, I want to talk about how difficult it is not just to separate yourself from the individual, but all of the internal work that needs to be done following that separation. We're uh, talking about the book, Rejected to Accepted. My guest is Lysandra Barnes. Uh, She holds an MDiv from Western and working on her doctorate from George Fox. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 49 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Lysandra Barnes. She is a founder and CEO of Royal One Enterprise, LLC. And she's also the author of Rejected to Accepted, Learning to Love Myself After Adversity. I don't know how you have time to do all the things that you're doing, but I'm glad that you're here today. Now, just before the break, I was asking uh, about um, what you carry with you if you don't take care of, of um, unfinished business, when you've left, left an abusive situation, walk out of that into freedom. Now, one might assume that, well, now uh, the strings that once held me there, they're severed, and so I don't have to worry about any residual uh, impact of that experience. Is that the case, or is there work yet to be done? There's work yet to be done. Just because you walked out of a place physically doesn't mean mentally you've walked out of that space. And that's the part about doing the work. You have to now go in and rewrite those negative narratives that that person has spoken over your life and those seeds that have been planted there. And if you don't do that work, you will always stay stuck. Um, for me, it was I moved from Michigan to Oregon, and I still struggled with myself. Something that the that my abuser said to me, he said, you will never, no one will ever want you because you are damaged goods. Hmm. And every relationship I got in that did not work after that, that's the first thing that came back to me was no one will want you because you're damaged goods. And I had to take that to the Lord. And I had to say, okay, Lord, I need you to rewrite this narrative for me because you say that I am your daughter and that if any you know person be in Christ, there's a new creation. However, the lie that has been spoken over me keeps showing to be true in my life. And so the Lord took me through a process of healing and it was hard. I would say most of the time, 
people should do this with a counselor or a coach. But mm-hmm. for me, I believe that God is real. He's alive and he's well. I believe that the Holy Spirit can be a counselor. He can be anything that you, you know, you need. And for me, that's really what he was. It would be times in prayer. And I would just feel like the Lord is leading me to you know, ask a question to say, well, what do you feel about love? And I'm like, well, honestly, Lord, I feel like love has failed me. So these are the things that I'm laying out before the Lord. I'm getting out these narratives that I believe about myself and about, you know, do I love myself? Well, no, Lord, I don't love myself. Why? So I'm allowing God to heal as I release all of these negatives and then give me truth to build upon with the word of God. But you had to take um, intentional time apart in which you wrestled with God in a sense, working through all of these things. And of course, the enemy is always there to exploit um, falsehoods that have been spoken over individuals that we tend to hold on to. In fact, it's much easier to remember those things than the positive uh, narratives that may also apply to our lives. Absolutely. I think the other thing is that, um, funny enough, when I was in my master's program, um, I was taking a class for pastoral care to women, and it was on shepherding women in pain. And um, Stacy Womack, who is mm-hmm. the C, uh, the director of ARMS, she came in and she started going over the lesson on domestic abuse. And I felt like she was reading my story. And the Lord, you know, I felt like the Holy Spirit was telling me, you need to work with her. So I interned there for a year and then I worked on staff for, I believe, three additional years after that. And so during that time, I had the opportunity to actually lead those um those women, uh, her journey classes. So for years, I was able to walk through that. I had to walk through the class myself first before I could teach it. And so that was another thing that the mm-hmm. Lord used to heal me. And then was I able to now use that information for other women? So you don't know how the Lord will open up doors for you to sit into spaces where you now have to come back head on to the situation that you've walked away from to do a full healing for that. When you look back at Uh, And you write in some detail in the book about the experience of uh, domestic violence. When you look back on that, do you see God's hand at work in preparing you for something greater than you ever could have imagined while you're in the midst of this uh, very difficult set of circumstances? It wasn't until I was a facilitator of those classes that I had women way older than I was in that room sitting, wanting to hear what I had to say. And when I was sharing my, you know, parts of my story or things like that, I now understood, Lord, you brought me through that one little blip of time, that one little thing, so that I can empower, encourage, and uplift women to let them know that they are loved, they are wanted, they are cherished, and that they can begin again. And although that experience happened in their lives, that is not what they're defined by. Mm -hmm. They're defined by who God says that they are and not that experience. We're talking about the book Rejected to Accepted, Learning to Love Myself After Adversity. LaSandra Barnes is my guest. And Uh, The author, this is her first book. One of the things you write about in the book is your perspective on love uh, versus God's perspective and really having to have a a reorientation in your understanding of what is love. Is it physical affection? Is it the compliments that comes from uh, from a male? What is love? How did that how did that process of understanding God's perspective of love um, play out in your heart? And what role did God's word play in helping you to better understand what is love from his perspective? God's word played a tremendous role. Um, 1 Corinthians 13 is where I started to understand what was love. And I had to take time to really see what was God's perspective on that. And, you know, seminary was helpful so I could use, or if you're not in seminary, you can use commentaries or understanding it in a more of a deeper mm-hmm. way. Um, but once I start separating out what is man's definition of love, 
And what's God's definition of love? I have to take his definition to to put it against what I believe to say, well, Lord, you know, I feel like love, you know, failed me. And then it's scripture says it did not fail you. You know, you know, God is love. So if he's love, he's saying, I never failed you. I've been with you this whole time. I've been walking with you. You know, I have never failed you. So let's change that idea of what you think is love and let me show you how to love. And I will never forget when I said that prayer, Lord, teach me how to love how to love like you love, how to love me. And that is what started to change when I just surrendered my, my, my expectations, my will and my desires to God to just say, have your way, Lord, do mm. what you see fit. And I'm going to follow. Yeah. You write that in October of 2007, I was presented with the option to either trust God or trust in myself. And we often wrestle with that uh, decision. I heard the Lord instruct me to move to Portland, Oregon, to attend seminary after graduation. I was a senior at Michigan State University with plans to work for the Michigan State Department of Forensic Lab. And you decided you were going to follow God's uh, God's call. You came to Portland. Describe your life now and how God has fulfilled his promise to to fulfill you um, and to uh, reshape you after what could have been a life defining series of events. I am in, like, I would say the best place of my life, um, taking the journey to step out on faith, to move out here. I've been able to actually be a scientist. I was able to fulfill that. I, I was a scientist for about three years. And then I got my master's degree. I was able to go to Israel. I'm working on a doctorate. I have a business. I love ministry and life change church. Like I have a great community. Like God has been able to heal me. And I feel like some of those things probably wouldn't have happened had I not left Mm -hmm. what was so comfortable to me because it's so easy to stay in what's comfortable and just hide. But when I moved out here, I was able to just be honest with myself and grow in my faith because I had no one else to depend on but God. And so once I stepped out to trust God, he just began to show me how real he was to me. And it wasn't about stuff or relationships or any of that. It was about that, about my relationship with him and how his word is so true. If he says, I will supply all of your needs, he's done it in my life. So there's nothing that can happen or anyone can say to make me doubt how real my God is. I love Jesus. I love him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's let's talk about um, that, that hole that had been left in your heart, the longing that you once had uh, that was left when your father essentially left and he has since passed away. And that was another wounding for you. Um, has there been a scar? Is that a recurring theme uh, for women who are listening who have been the victims of domestic violence? Is that something they have to carry with them all of their life? Or what is God's purpose in taking you through, as uh, you write about in the book, um, addressing those things in a way that that focuses on him? When you start addressing the, the issues of your life, it takes the shame away. And so I'm no longer afraid to tell my story. The scripture says that we overcome by the words of our testimony. With the, wait, I'm sorry. I said the scripture all wrong. We overcome by the, our testimony. You guys know the scripture. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we overcome by our testimony through the blood of the lamb, the words of our testimony, something like that. Um, I really want to know that scripture. But by using our testimony, we are able to shine a light on what God can do. And there's nothing that God cannot fulfill. And so no matter what you go through, the more you heal from it, that's mm-hmm. the way the enemy no longer has the, the tool to say, well, if anybody finds out who you really are, they're not going to want you. No, because I'm telling the story myself. I was afraid to let the book go. I was afraid to release my book because I said, what will people say? And then I really thought about it. I said, well, who are they? Hmm. They don't exist. So why don't I be honest and share what I've gone through to tell people 
that that God loves them, that he can heal them. And there's nothing bad that has ever happened to you that he can't love you and heal you through. Yeah. yeah. There's nothing. You know, one of the things that, that struck me about the book, this is a telling of your story. And yet in the midst of the story, this really is a God story. This says something about who God is, the extent of his grace, the extent of his love, what he can do with a surrendered heart when we come before him and how um, we are never... Um, cast off, that there's always an opportunity for purpose and usefulness in the kingdom of God when we are surrendered to him. And I so appreciate hearing your story and uh, learning to appreciate more who God is when we're in our weakest moments. Yeah. I want to, uh, before that, I have to fix that scripture. We overcome <laughs> by the blood of the lamb and the word of our, our testimony. testimony. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think so many times we read a lot of things and we don't give God the glory that's due unto him. And for me, it's just a small story, but I just want to introduce people to a Jesus that will change their lives. It's not about hating. It's not about, you know, legalism. It's just about love. God loves us where we are. He takes our stuff and he will fix it. If we let the Lord do his work, we can now be the examples that we see in scripture. All these people that we admire in scripture, they just talked about how good their experience with Jesus or their experience with God in the Old Testament or with Jesus in the New. And that's what God still calls us to do. He calls us on the Great Commission to go out, right, and be disciples and make disciples. But how do we make disciples? With your testimony yeah. of what did he do for you and why not allow that to be his story so we can draw more people to, to Jesus. Amen. Once again, the book is titled Rejected to Accepted, Learning to Love Myself After Adversity, Lysandra Barnes. Where can our listeners find a copy? Um, you can find it online at Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Um, all the usual all places. All the usual places, yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate Thank it. you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back seven minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, I want to remind you, and by the way, a couple of things. I want to remind you that today's program is brought to you in part by Zero Res. But more importantly, I want to remind you that we'll be talking with Max McLean, uh, who is presenting C.S. Lewis, the most reluctant convert uh, here in the Portland uh, area, the Newmark Theater on August the 2nd and the 3rd. That's a Friday night and a Saturday night. And today, tomorrow, and for the first three days of next week, we're going to be giving away pairs of tickets to that performance. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to attend one of the, uh, one of the events that's hosted by the Fellowship for Performing Arts. Well, they're returning to Portland, and this is an excellent presentation. I've been to, I think, every, every performance that they've done when they've come to the Portland area. I've been a... a donor to the ministry because they just do excellent work. Anyway, I'm so excited about uh, him coming back to the Portland area. And this will be C.S. Lewis on stage, the most reluctant convert. And this tells the story of the atheist, the ardent atheist who comes to faith. And it traces that um, that uh, path uh, from being an atheist to a believer and one of the most influential and certainly prolific uh, writers of the 20th century with regard to the subject of faith. So... Anyway, we're going to be giving away uh, pairs of tickets today, tomorrow, and as I mentioned, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of next week. Now, just for a heads up, the performances will be at the Newmark Theater, the second and third. That's a Friday and Saturday uh, of that month. And um, uh, maybe you had the opportunity to see 
the, the screw tape letters, the great divorce. Uh, those performances were here in the Portland area. Well, Max McLean is going to be presenting this highly um, acclaimed theatrical portrayal of C.S. Lewis journey from atheism to faith. So we'll be giving tickets away and talking with him uh, at the bottom of this hour. And I'm looking forward to that. Uh, looking back at what's going on in the country around us, uh, go big or go home. Uh, Bernie Sanders is saying that Medicare for all would top now uh, $40 trillion. That seems to be the adage on which uh, presidential candidate to Bernie Sanders, self-described socialist, has decided to stake his campaign on. Well, yesterday he unveiled his latest version of Medicare for all, his scheme for a <clears throat> single payer health care. He estimated it could cost up to $40 trillion over 10 years, which blows past the $32 trillion estimate outsiders calculated after he first started peddling the plan. Previously, he had admitted that he would raise taxes across the board to pay for this government power grab. But now that he's up the price, he's downplaying that um, uh, broad tax increase and focusing on the rich paying more. Well, the rich certainly would be paying more, but it wouldn't be sufficient to cover this and free college tuition and all of the other initiatives that he and other uh, hopefuls are um, are talking about. Well, this massive sum of $40 trillion only exposes his apparent, um, well, misunderstanding from my perspective of basic economics um, Jazz Shaw, who writes for Hot Air, observes that $40 trillion over 10 years is an average of $4 trillion per year. Does anyone recall what the entire budget of the United States federal government was for 2018? It was $4.94 trillion. That's the whole U.S. economy just for health care. So Sanders is um, casually talking about expending the equivalent of our entire budget on his health care plan. While, by the way, simultaneously outlawing private health insurance and wiping out an entire industry, um, which is uh, consistent with his self-described position on the socialism scale. Well, nevertheless, he insists that his plan is not absurd, asserting that what the most serious economists tell us is that if we do nothing to fundamentally change the health care system, which is what Joe Biden is talking about, keeping it as it is, we'll be spending something like $50 trillion over a 10-year period. Biden uh, released his plan recommending an expansion of Obamacare, which uh, he says would cost an estimated $750 billion, not trillion, but billion over the next 10 years. Well, the fact of the matter is this is exactly what uh, conservatives warned against when Nancy Pelosi and company were forcing Obamacare onto the backs of the American people. Uh, they were warned, we were warned, that Obamacare was setting up an excuse to push for a single-payer government takeover of America's health care system. And in more candid conversation, uh, President Senator Obama had said uh, that's precisely then Senator Obama said that's precisely what his primary preference was. So Bernie Sanders proposing a health care, a Medicare for all that would exceed the entire U.S. budget, uh, at least for 2018. Something to uh, to think about. Well, did the confirmation battle of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh help or hurt the Me Too movement? How did the mainstream media miss so many red flags regarding the accusers? And what was the horrific media storm like for the Kavanaugh family? Well, Molly Hemingway and Carrie Severino are authors of the best-selling new book, Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court. They share what really happened during those hearings and what that means for the future of the court and all Americans. Uh, in fact, I just received today a copy of a review copy of that book, and I'm working on trying to set up an interview uh, between the two of them. But it's a fascinating story that tells the behind the scenes story of details uh, leading up to uh, all of uh, all of that. Um, 
So anyway, we're working on that. And again, the title of the book, Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court. One of the things that's interesting about it isn't just the Kavanaugh hearings, but what this means for the future of the court. And again, I'm looking on uh, arranging an interview on that very topic. Meanwhile, one of California's most liberal cities voted on Tuesday to revamp its city code book by replacing terms like manhole and manpower with gender neutral terms. Now, this is not a a change that they're imposing on the people, but we're talking about uh, they're replacing their um, uh, terms in their uh, legal documents, their municipal code. The Berkeley City Council voted to replace around three dozen terms found in the municipal code, terms like policeman, policewoman, chairwoman, and chairman. They're all going to be changed, as will he, she, him, and her. Uh, This is in the interest of equality. The Democratic City Council member who wrote the ordinance said the change is necessary because a male-centric city code is inaccurate and not reflective of our reality. Now, this isn't unusual in that culture changes, language, language changes over time, but to have it mandated is somewhat unusual here in the United States. That is unique. He says women and non-binary individuals are just as entitled to accurate representation. Our laws are for everyone, and our municipal code should reflect that. Well, the measure passed without debate uh, or Tuesday night. It will cost about $600 to implement the ordinance, presumably to reprint all of the uh, document. But here are some of the um, uh, gendered terms that are going to be replaced by non-gendered terms. Uh, Bondsman will be replaced by bondsperson. That's not all that unusual. Person has replaced man or men in many cases, uh, A brother is no longer going to be used for that matter. Neither is sister. Rather, it will be sibling, chairman, chair or chairperson. Again, not all that dramatic. Craftsman, craftspeople or artisans, uh, fireman, firewoman, fireman, um, firefighter or fighters uh, will be the new term. Fraternal will be social. Heirs will be beneficiaries because that uh, suggests a familial connection. Journeyman will be journey. Maiden will be family, um, as in maiden name, family name. Male and female, people of different genders. So male and female will be replaced. Uh, Manhole, as I mentioned, will be maintenance hole. Man-made will be human-made, artificial, manufactured, machine-made, or synthetic. Again, this is in the the, um, civic code there. Uh, Master will be replaced with captain, skipper, pilot, safety officer, or central. I'm not sure I would get it if those words were used. Man and woman would be people. Um, Ombudsman would be ombuds, investigating official. Patrolman would be patrol or guard. Uh, Police officer would replace any gender reference to a police officer. Pregnant would be pregnant employees. Um, Rather than pregnant woman, uh, it would be pregnant employees because the fiction is still being floated that men can uh, bear children. Salesman would be replaced by salesperson or people. Um, sorority or fraternity would be collegiate Greek system residents. That uh, flows trippingly off the, song, the tongue. Sportsman would be hunter. And the masculine pronoun includes, uh, including the feminine, would be words referring to a specific gender may be extended to any other gender. So uh, if you're in Berkeley, um, this is what you're going to find in the city Codes. Now, it may be somewhat awkward. It may be unfamiliar. But my guess is this is the direction that much of our language will ultimately go 
And young people will find it quite natural because that's how they will be taught moving forward. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward to a conversation with Max McLean. He is going to be presenting C.S. Lewis, The Most Reluctant Convert. And in fact, I want to give away a pair of tickets to the August the 2nd performance. That's at um, uh, the Newmark Theater that's coming up here. Uh, That's a Friday night. And as I mentioned, we're going to be giving away uh, tickets for um, all of the the remainder of this week and into next week as well. Um, This performance is at 8 o'clock. It's at the Newmark Theater. And uh, performance at 8 o'clock p.m. And for those of you who prefer a Saturday performance, we won't be giving away tickets. But uh, on uh, Saturday, August the 3rd, the performance will be at 4 o'clock. And again, this is um, produced by the Fellowship for Performing Arts. Mac McLean is the artistic director and founder of the Fellowship for Performing Arts. And he'll be presenting C.S. Lewis, The Most Reluctant Convert. We want to give away a pair of tickets to the third caller, and we would love for that to be you. Uh, The number to call, 800-845-2162. 800-845-2162. Again, giving away a pair of tickets to C.S. Lewis, The Most Reluctant Convert, 8 o'clock p.m. on Friday night, August the 2nd. Uh, The Washington Post called the performance masterful. Uh, Theater Mania called the performance uncanny and spot on and the New Yorker intriguing. Uh, C.S. Lewis on stage, the most reluctant convert. Max McLean is an award-winning actor. Uh, He presents uh, the theatrical portrayal of Lewis's journey from atheism to faith. And that's coming to the Portland Newmark Theater in just a couple of weeks. We would love for you to have a pair of tickets. And again, we'll do the same tomorrow. Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of next week. Well, the GOP uh, platform in July of 2016 said this, the huge increase in the national debt demanded by and incurred during the current administration has placed a significant burden on future generations. We must impose firm caps on future debt, accelerate the payment of the trillions we now owe in order to reaffirm our principles of responsible and limited government and remove the burdens we are placing on future generations. Again, that's a quote from the GOP platform in July of 2016. We'll fast forward three years and $2.6 trillion deeper into uh, the red. Will the last conservative in Washington turn out the lights? Well, Senate Republicans are now praying that President Trump accepts the deal that they've cut with House Democrats to destroy his uh, Uh, presidency and any leverage he'll ever have, not just on spending, but on important policy issues such as immigration, abortion funding. Now's the time for conservatives not just to pray, but to demand that the president reject the deal and simply call for a continuing resolution to keep fighting for spending cuts and the proper policy writers in fiscal year 2020. How successful is that likely to be? Well, only time will tell, but it is the time uh, for Congress to take this up And uh, we'll certainly follow the story to see whether or not future generations and the uh, ever-growing national debt are taken into consideration in this decision-making process. Meanwhile, an ever-growing number of rodents in California, particularly in Los Angeles, is being fueled by a spiking homeless population and restrictions on rodent sides that are risking a public health crisis, according to a study that was released earlier this week. The report by Political Action Committee Reform California 
cites recent rodent-related events over the past six months, including an employee at the Los Angeles Police Department contacting, uh, contracting typhus and a rat falling from the ceiling of a Buffalo Wild Wings onto the menu of a patron as proof of an undeniable problem. California is being overrun by rodents, as the chairman of Reform California. Without immediate emergency action by state and local government, we face significant economic costs and risk of a public health crisis. Rodents can carry dangerous diseases such as typhus, plague, salmonella, in addition to uh, the roles contributing to asthma, particularly to common uh, belief being bitten by a rodent is rare and isn't the most common way diseases spread. Nonetheless, reports of city workers being bitten by rodents is on the rise, with most recent cases being reported in Los Angeles. Two other uh, vehicles of transmission are far more prevalent, fleas and, well, urine droppings. Well, the study also surveyed 23 pest control companies in California, found that all of the reported um, uh, rat service requests were up almost 60% in the past year. Included in the study was a list of um, rattiest cities in the nation published by the pest control company Orkin, which named Los Angeles as the second most rat-infested city in the nation, and that's behind Chicago. At a press conference at the Los Angeles City Hall on Tuesday, uh, there were two particular reasons behind the explosion. They're now... uh, Suggesting first, the homeless population increase, which provides a source of food, which supports population growth. Second, many local governments, including Los Angeles, have banned the most effective practices for detecting and eradicating rats. About three quarters of the nearly 59,000 homeless people counted in Los Angeles uh, this past year were living outdoors, fueling concerns of a growing public health crisis, not just to others, but to themselves with piles of garbage and rats near Uh, encampments lining uh, downtown sidewalks. So the problem is only getting worse there. And finally, the son of a Pakistani governor who was assassinated in 2011 because of his support for imprisoned Christian mother Asia Bibi told religious freedom advocates that there were over 200 people jailed in Pakistan for blasphemy. There are 200 plus Asia Bibis being held there. Uh, Sahan Taser, the son of uh, Punjab Governor Salman Taser, Uh, delivered a powerful address at the State Department's second ministerial to advance religious freedom on Wednesday, the second day of a three-day summit, touted as the largest of its kind ever held. Well, eight years later, the woman that my father gave his life to defend has been found innocent by the highest court in the country, Tasier said. For this, ladies and gentlemen, I want to congratulate each and every one of you. Asia Bibi's acquittal is a victory for humanity. It's a victory for human dignity, and it's a victory for common sense. And although the world rejoiced when Bibi, real name Asia Noreen, was acquitted by Pakistani Supreme Court last fall after spending nearly a decade on death row over an accusation that she insulted Islam's prophet, uh, Tazier warned that there are uh, there's so much work left to be done. As we celebrate these victories, we must be mindful of the challenges ahead, he stressed. Now, this is a conference, of course, the State Department is holding on um, religious freedom. At the top of that list is our Christians, but it's not exclusive to the Christian faith. There are others. But he stressed, while Asia Bibi, the world's most famous prisoner, victim of blasphemy, is a free woman, I want you all to know that there are 200 Asia Bibis in jail accused of blasphemy laws in Pakistan today, and these are only the reported cases. Tazier um, has followed in his father's footsteps in calling for an end to Pakistan's blasphemy laws, which are regularly used by Muslims in Muslim-majority countries to 
take advantage of or settle scores with religious minorities. It may be unrelated to faith at all, but it is a means to silence one's opponent. Under Pakistan's penal code, Section 295, those accused of insulting Islam's prophet Muhammad or desecrating a Quran could be subject to imprisonment or even capital punishment. Bibi, an illiterate farm laborer, was accused by Muslim colleagues of insulting Muhammad during an argument, a claim that she has denied. In 2010, she was sentenced to death by the Pakistani court. My father, as the governor at the time, said, no, not on my watch. I will not let this injustice take place for this woman, uh, not when I am governor. Well, he threw his weight behind Asia Bibi. He met with her in prison. He showed her that he stood with her and for her. He called for a presidential pardon given the weakness of the case, and he called for a reform of the blasphemy law. And although he was a Muslim himself, uh, he drew um, ire of the radicals in Pakistan who demanded he issue a retraction. He refused to retract his support for Bibi and his, uh, uh, his call for blasphemy reform. A fatwa was issued calling for his death, and the rest, of course, we know, resulted in his death. He was shot 27 times by his bodyguard, um, and that uh, was the story of one who stood for justice on the opposite side of the religious continuum, but stood for what is right. And that conference, the largest of its kind uh, ever held, is ongoing through tomorrow. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, a conversation with Max McLean, C.S. Lewis, the most reluctant convert coming to Portland, August 2nd and 3rd. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I am delighted to announce that Fellowship for Performing Arts is returning to Portland with a masterful performance of C.S. Lewis on stage, The Most Reluctant Convert. Following its hit 2018 national tour, Fellowship for Performing Arts, the producers of The Screwtape Letters and The Great Divorce, is returning to Portland with C.S. Lewis on stage, The Most Reluctant Convert. Now, this award-winning performance by an award-winning actor, Max McLean, presents a theatrical portrayal of C.S. Lewis' journey from atheism to faith. And what a tremendous journey this is. In fact, uh, the Weekly Standard writes, C.S. Lewis on stage delivers something truly novel in modern theater, a story about an immensely creative mind arriving at the threshold of faith, a truthful, richly textured and witty account of religious conversion. Well, C.S. Lewis, of course, is one of the uh, most vibrant and influential Christian intellectuals of the 20th 20th century, and his journey from atheism to faith is one worth tracing. Well, my guest is Max McLean. He is founder and artistic director of New York City-based Fellowship for Performing Arts, which produces um, theater uh, from a Christian worldview presented in leading performances uh, and performance venues nationwide and created uh, to engage diverse audiences. And we are delighted that this performance is coming to the Newmark Theater here in the Portland area on the 2nd and 3rd of August. Max McLean, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Georgine. Looking forward to coming to Portland next week. Well, we are so excited about this uh, this new performance. Tell us a little bit about The Most Reluctant Convert. Well, it started uh, as a result of doing uh, the theatrical adaptations of The Screwtape Letters and The Great Divorce. Uh, because when you adapt any kind of, of book from the page to the stage, you really have to uh, dig into it. And both of those stories, The Screwtape Letters and The Great Divorce, told aspects of Lewis's mm-hmm. own conversion story. In The Screwtape Letters, 
he is the patient who is the object of Screwtape's attacks. And so Lewis was, was referring to the kind of spiritual warfare that was keeping him from faith. And in The Great Divorce, he is the uh, narrator that's being guided on this trip to heaven. And he's, he's telling about how, uh, how, how he resisted the Holy Spirit in his life. Uh, and so it got me to thinking, wow, Lewis is always talking about his, his conversion. He's, he's always going back to it. So I decided to look at his conversion, surprised by Joe, and realize he wrote so much about his conversion, uh, Pilgrim's Regress, Till We Have Faces, Surprised by Joy. All of his books, all of these books told, uh, centered on that pivotal moment when he recognized, realized clearly that Jesus is the Son of God. Is C.S. Lewis still relevant today? One might argue that he has significant influence through his writing, but for young people who may be less familiar uh, with his place in history and his writings, is he still relevant today? Well, there's several ways to answer that question. One is the sale of his books. Uh, he sells. He sold more books this year than he sold last year, and very likely will sell more books next year than this year. And that's because uh, uh, people are discovering him. Mm-hmm. And, and, he, and he has an ability to articulate the Christian faith in such imaginative, multi-layered ways that is so satisfying uh, to uh, a particular kind of person, like we take myself, you know, uh, academic types, artistic types, literary types, who, who often are uh, unfertile, hard soil for the gospel. And and Lewis has a marvelous way of softening people's hearts. And, and he's done that, you know, with people like uh, Chuck Colson and uh, many others that uh, came to faith through his writings. Uh, so I do think that anytime anyone uh, opens up mere Christianity or, or reads a quote, you know, he's probably uh, the most person that's lifted quotes from his writings more than anybody else means all over the place. And, and people say, who wrote that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and of course, you know, he captures people's imagination uh, for the gospel in a way that, uh, that I don't think any other writer even comes close. Yeah. I think one of the things I especially appreciate about his story is that we tend to imagine in the 21st century that those who hold to the view that there is no God, it's it's too far a, a leap to imagine that they would come to faith in Christ. And yet this thoughtful intellectual who did all of the uh, the intellectual work at arriving at his faith and, and to sort of trace how he came to faith in Christ in that personal relationship uh, just resonates, I, I would think, in the 21st century. And it is a hopeful message for those of us who are serious about sharing our faith in a comely way. It really is. And, and what's so interesting is is the world that he lived in, you know, the Lord brought people in his path, people like J.R.R. Tolkien, who was crucially in, uh, mm-hmm. uh, placed. Uh, without Tolkien, I don't think that uh, Lewis would have really understood the significance of who Jesus is. And of course, uh, Lewis is, uh, is, uh, is known, of course, that uh, if, uh, if, if Jesus' statements are false, Christianity is of no importance. If true, it is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. Uh, Lewis recognized uh, through Tolkien and, and others, uh, G.K. Chesterton, 
uh, and George MacDonald that, that Jesus, uh, when he says things that uh, he always existed, he's going to come again to judge the world. Who says things like that? Lunatics say things like that, but not great moral teachers. They don't say like that things like that. So Jesus, uh, if, if he says things like that, either uh, he is a, a liar, a lunatic, or uh, you have to give uh, some credibility to what he said. If you think that he is uh, shrewd and uh, and and spoke with uh, with with tre- with tremendous insight, uh, that even his enemies uh, were impressed by by that. Nobody thought of him as a lunatic. That was totally out of the question. Mm-hmm. So, and then of course, then you have uh, then you have to look at the miracles. Uh, all of these things uh, made uh, Lewis come to the conclusion uh, that, as he said, that uh, you know, he, his conversion began, uh, he said, uh, on the road to Whipsnade Zoo. He was uh, being driven by his brother, Warney, in the sidecar of, of a motorcycle to Whipsnade Zoo one sunny morning in the autumn of 1931. When he set out, he did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. When he reached the zoo, he did. <laughs> <laughs> and and it was like now everybody asked what happened during that motorcycle ride well he had been arguing with himself for 17 years and that moment he stopped arguing and uh, he had his born again experience and he realized that the the thread the golden thread of joy that was that was kind of the the the, the great uh, pull of his life the golden thread that kept he kept looking for was leading him to the gospel. Mm. Well, what might our listeners expect in this one-man show as you take on the persona of C.S. Lewis to tell this remarkable story of the most reluctant convert who not only came to faith in Christ out of atheism, but became one of the most influential Christian intellectuals of the 20th century? Well, just just to go from what you've just described, from A to Z like that is, is, a, is, is essentially what the story uh the 80 minute play is is a, a, about um how how he made that step it's theater uh so it has to be entertaining it's a very funny show because he is he's such a huge personality mm-hmm. uh with tremendous wit uh that uh, the the play just uh just has a a tremendous way of of grabbing uh, people's attention in in such a deep, profound way uh, that uh, people think that it's like 20 minutes. Hmm. Well, I am so thrilled. I will be in the audience, and I know many of our listeners will be as well. I want to remind our listeners that uh, we're talking about C.S. Lewis on stage, The Most Reluctant Convert at the Newmark Theater. It's coming up Friday and Saturday, August 2nd and 3rd. On Friday the 2nd at 8 p.m. and on Saturday, August the 3rd at 4 p.m. We have given away a pair of tickets today and we'll continue to do that through Wednesday of next week. But really want to encourage you to take advantage of an opportunity to consider C.S. Lewis from a slightly different vantage point. You may have read his work. Maybe you're familiar with the name, but not so much with his work. This is a tremendously entertaining way to get to know a little bit about the man behind the the books that uh, so many of us have seen in the movie theater and books that we have studied. Uh, And Max McLean is just unrivaled in terms of uh, performing as C.S. Lewis. Uh, If you're interested in tickets, and I hope you are, you can go to cslewisonstage.com or you can call 800-273- 
1530. You'll find all that information at kpdq.com as well. Again, cslewisonstage.com or call 800-273-1530. And we'll continue to uh, remind you that this event is coming up very soon, and we would love to see you there at the Newmark Theater. Well, we're so thrilled that once again you're coming to Portland with uh, excellent theater and bringing C.S. Lewis to life. And I thank you for taking the time to uh, share that with us today. Delighted to do it. Thank you. We will see you shortly. (laughs) Bye-bye. Again, Max McLean, uh, just a, a tremendous performer, coming to the Portland area, the Newmark Theater, August the 2nd and Saturday, August the 3rd. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow we're going to have a fun Friday edition of the program, so I hope you will join us. Well, I don't know if you've been following the uh, coverage on the so-called Face app. It's drawing viral attention on social media for the service that it allows users to provide it. Um, it posts, uh, you uh, post a picture of yourself at your current age and how you look, and it changes the photo to look like you have aged considerably. Well, privacy experts are warning that the uh, Russian-based firm uh, Terms of Service could pose a data security risk to consumers. Now, I'm seeing all kinds of familiar faces that have aged several decades online, and they're using this new Face app. It was, uh, it's owned, apparently, by Russian startup Wireless Lab. It uses artificial intelligence to alter selfies uploaded by its users. And the app is available on Apple's App Store and Google Play Store. It became a social media sensation this week with countless users and celebrities, including Kevin Hart, uh, singer Carrie Underwood, and others posting photos of themselves that were edited using this Face app. Well, as the trend went viral, data privacy experts have noted that the... Uh, App's Terms of Service and Privacy grants the company rights to any uploaded photos, including for potential commercial use, and raised questions about how FaceApp uses and stores that data. Now, FaceApp also drew criticism from Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. He called on uh, Wednesday for the Federal Trade Commission and the FBI to investigate the practices of this uh, app and raised questions about the company's ties to the Russian government. Now, it's difficult for me to envision how images uh, that are uploaded from your Facebook page might be abused or misused by Russia. But nonetheless, this is the concern, Uh, says FBI Director Ray himself. In particular, FaceApp's location in Russia raises questions regarding how and when the company provides access to the data of you on U.S. citizens to third parties, including potentially foreign governments. Um, He pointed out earlier this year, and I'm referring to FBI Director Ray, that Russia remains a significant counterintelligence threat. It would be deeply troubling if the sensitive personal information of U.S. citizens was provided to a hostile foreign power actively engaging in cyber hostilities against the United States. Well, tech firms around the world have faced unprecedented security over their data practices in recent months in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, scandal rather, where a British firm improperly accessed the data of up to 87 million Facebook users. You might be one of them. I might too. Well, while no evidence has surfaced that FaceApp is misusing the photos or other data, experts said the public should exercise caution when using the service. Since the exact depth of FaceApp's access and potential usage of data remains unclear at this point. Uh, says Gary Davies, who's McAfee's chief consumer security evangelist. At this moment, there's nothing to indicate that the app is taking photos for malicious intent. However, it is important for consumers to be aware that certain countries have shown little regard for the privacy of people using technologies 
based there. It's always best to err on the side of caution with any personal data and think carefully about what you're uploading or sharing. Now, I know if you read through all of the uh, requirements uh, that these apps have, it can be rather daunting. And oftentimes you just click, yeah, fine, not knowing um, what that may or may not mean. But this is a, a cautionary tale that we should probably pay a little more attention. Well, according to Face Apps Terms of Service, users grant the company a perpetual, irrevocable, non-exclusive, royalty-free, worldwide, full-paid, transferable, sub-licensable license to use content, including photos, without providing notice or compensation. The open-ended nature of that clause could pose a risk to users over time, according to Privacy International. This is a UK-based uh, charity. Now, people are right to be alarmed by terms of use like the one on FaceApp, uh, as they should be with similar apps, uh, the Privacy International said in a blog post. It's not clear how FaceApp stores, uses, or manipulates people's data, including the detailed biometric naps of their face. And this could change over time as profit incentives and technologies change. So they have access to this stuff, and it could be altered at some point in the future uh, when it uh, is um, more useful. Well, in a lengthy statement to TechCrunch, FaceApp denied that it accesses the photo libraries of its users, users rather without permission or sells data to third parties. Most photos uploaded to FaceApp servers are uh, deleted within 48 hours, the company said. Most, they say. Uh, even though the, the core research and development team is located in Russia, the user data is not transferred, the company said, to Russia. Last year, the European Union implemented the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, to establish data privacy standards for companies active in that region. U.S. lawmakers are considering whether to pursue similar regulations here. Elizabeth Potts Weinstein, a Silicon Valley-based lawyer, noted that FaceApp's privacy poly is not remotely GDPR compliant. Concerned users should refrain from enabling apps that ask for access to personal data, according to Davis. A good security practice is to only share personal data, including personal photos, when it's truly necessary. It can be very tempting, as I saw some of the images of some of my friends. Uh, you know, your curiosity is peaked. I wonder what I would look like 20 years from now. Well, the answer probably just about the same, old and rugged. But anyway, you're sort of tempted to do it because other people are doing it and uh, without really considering what... Uh, what the risks might be of uh, moving in that direction. So you've been warned. Well, after a two-year, 72,000, I should say $72.3 million renovation, the famous Crystal Cathedral in Southern California reopened its doors uh, yesterday as a Roman Catholic church, now called Christ Cathedral. For years, the ornate glass church in Garden Grove, south of Los Angeles, was the setting of for the late Reverend Robert H. Schuler's weekly Hour of Power televised program. Um, but after Schuler retired, his Crystal Cathedral ministry suffered financial problems, was forced to sell the iconic structure, which was completed in 1981. The Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange eventually purchased the church for about $60 million in 2011, four years before Schuler died at age 88. Now, with the renovation complete, the diocese hopes to make the cathedral a focal point for its spiritual mission. The cathedral, rather, stands as a physical sign of unity of the 62 parishes in the Diocese of Orange. The Reverend Christopher Smith, rector and Episcopal vicar of the church, told the Los Angeles Times. The renovations incorporate important Catholic icon uh, iconography, including a 1,000-pound crucifix, a cross-shaped baptismal pool. Relics from several Catholic martyrs and Pope John Paul II are also encased in the altar, according to the Times. The building's also upgraded with several modern renovations, including seismic retrofitting and air conditioning, which were absent 
when it was originally used. Well, it's getting more difficult these days to actually trust what you're seeing, what you're hearing, and now what you're reading. Amazon apparently sold $240,000 worth of a particular book, Liturgy of the Ordinary. They were all fakes, according to the publisher. Now, if I had been the writer, I'd be a little put out. It took Tish Harrison Warren nearly three years to publish her first book. It was more than 18 months of arranging childcare, carving out time to write before she uh, had a manuscript, 11 chapters chronicling details from her day-to-day life paired with the rhythm of church ritual. By the time Liturgy of the Ordinary debuted in December of 2016, she and her publishing team had gone through the process of selecting a cover, an open-faced peanut butter and jelly sandwich against a bright green backdrop, and editing the page uh, proofs to check every dot and detail. But over the past year, thousands of readers ended up with copies that didn't quite look like the book she and InterVarsity Press had finalized three years ago. The cover was not sharp. The pages were a bit off-center. These were not InterVarsity Press books at all. They were counterfeits. Just as the New York Times put out a report in late June on a surge of counterfeit books available on Amazon, the 70-year-old Christian publisher discovered that one of its own had also been victim of a highly organized and sophisticated counterfeiting scheme. The Times covered complaints that the... uh, Country's top bookseller had been reactive rather than proactive in dealing with the issue and found examples of Amazon's third-party sellers pushing fakes across genres, medical handbooks, popular novels, classic literature, and so on. With this particular case, um, add Christian books to that list. Well, they estimate that at least 15,000 counterfeit copies of Liturgy of the Ordinary were sold on the site over the past nine months. The retail value, about $240,000. That nearly cut sales of, uh, of the book in half, according to InterVarsity Press, who reported 23,000 legitimate copies were sold. So, again, beware. And finally, I wanted to tell you I received this email. I'm just going to read it verbatim. This is to inform you that your overdue pending payment valued $25 million has been approved by the Central Bank of Nigeria to be transferred to you via ATM card. The card is a credit card. Uh, denominated in U.S. dollars, and it is linked to your dollar domiciliary account here in our bank. However, we have a problem at hand presently. We have a memo from the central bank that you are dead, that an application was submitted by one Mrs. Jennifer Brown a few days ago with a letter of authorization claiming to be your family legal representative who has the family mandate to claim the fund on your behalf, and the below is the banking information that is submitted. So all I need to do is clear this up, and I will receive $25 million in the form of a uh, ATM card, which I am entitled to. wanted to mention it because um, this may be my last day on the program, should this whole thing work out. It's all being held in the Bank of Nigeria. Okay, maybe seeing, reading is not always worth believing. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.